Well, guys, hello. Um, this is a pre-recorded, we're recording this on February 19th, 2023. Um, and Brittany let me know, but we just found out that Richard Beltzer, aka John Munch, has passed away. Yes, he passed away at the age of 78, and we're just both sad. He, yeah, he's been around in our lives since we were nine. It's, and you know, we have been really going hard on Munch in general for the last, you know, for the writing in these episodes, but it's a huge loss to the planet. Oh, yeah. A huge loss to the planet, obviously to his family and friends and to the actors who knew him professionally. But as fans, it's also, I'm sad that we didn't get the chance to get the classic Munch we knew before this happened that sounds selfish but i'm just kind of like we've been kind of you know taking the piss with him this in these early episodes but right but it's because we knew how great he becomes so yes we got a little taste of of the classic munch that we knew you know from later seasons in six seven and eight um and so this is just a this is just kind of devastating i mean not making it about us but we're like wow you know i just like she like Brittany said it would have been nice to get more of these tender munch scenes before this happened. Um, I don't know how that great that sounds, no, but... It's true. So, um, the episode you're about to hear, we recorded a, over a week ago, so this is obviously long before we heard the news, so we're... Obviously, that's not going to come up in this episode, but um, we do want to record a special, like, Munch tribute episode. We're going to pick one of his awesome classic episodes. And we are going to release that before we start continuing with our regularly scheduled programming. So just wanted to give you guys the heads up that we ahead of this episode, we, we do know what happened. We have heard the news and we're going to cover it the way that feels respectful for our podcast. Right. We didn't want to hop on and, you know, make this about us like the day it happened, you know, so because that's not the point, you know, we're, we're fans. We're not in any way authorities on this so this is just to let everyone know we did see it and we are devastated along with the rest of the fandom and well we're gonna pick an episode that really highlights him i have one in mind but i cannot recall the title right now uh and we're gonna recap that instead and we're gonna do facts about him i was just reading a cnn article that gave me more information than i even knew about him so i think that'll be fun and i think it'll be fun for us for to leave season one for a hot minute it's very new here. It's very, everything's getting set up for, with characters we don't really care about. So it's going to be nice to kind of jump into more of a classic season and get to celebrate the real John Munch. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah. So we had to say something. We would have been remiss. Uh, but we wanted to save it until the epi- this episode aired because it just felt better than hopping right on and releasing something. So this episode you will be hearing, it's part of our regularly scheduled program, season one, episode seven, Uncivilized. R.I.P. John. R.I.P. John. everybody 
Hi, everyone. Hey, this is the Elite Squad SVU in Review podcast. I'm Paige. Yes, I'm Brittany. And we're recording from my apartment in <laughs> New York City. Oh, my God. I'm looking at the out the window as we record and iced tea. And Mariska Hargaday are outside solving a crime. They it's, are it's crazy. On one of the rooftops interviewing a very bothered and busy rooftop worker. Who's a rooftop telling- bartender who's like polishing glasses. <laughs> He's like, I don't have time for this. That could actually happen. There's many a rooftop bar here. It's true. Oh my God. Now I'm distracted and now I'm like outside. I'm actually like looking for people. I'm like, oh, are they out there? That is, a, I shouldn't say too much, but that is a school over there. And it's Friday. They'll probably be outside soon. There's usually children. That's actually a very appropriate but upsetting background for this episode i mean i know that's Fuck. true wow you're right i forgot all about it. i was like that's true i guess oh right it's about a child what are we talking about today we are going to be covering uh law and order svu obviously and of course episode seven called uncivilized uncivilized very good for this very good name for this very good dark episode because we love the directing. Do you have the director's I name do. up there? I um, do. It's a one Mr. Michael Fields. I looked on his IMDb. He seems to just, um, just, <laughs> oh, um, minimizing his career. He does a lot of police procedurals. Well, thank God, because he really fixed up this one. Yes, he did an amazing job. He did an excellent job. He did do an excellent this job. This was David Fincher-esque. This is probably one of the best episodes so far this season. Uh, it's my favorite so far. I thought they could have completely, they could have done this as a pilot, honestly, because it was just, it was so good. It's just a really good episode. It's a really good episode. Yeah. It's like, it's perfect. It's the whole thing was creepy from top to bottom. There were like, you, it left you with questions, but not the type where we were just like, uh, but wait, what, <laughs> you mentioned that this girl was raped two months ago and you know exactly who did it, how there were several witnesses, but you're giving us no details. Nothing like that happened. It was all straightforward questions where you needed it. There's a little filler that I didn't enjoy, but we can get to that. You know what? I forgot. So I'm excited because I'm not going to, I'm probably not even going to argue with you. I'm just like, yeah, what filler? <laughs> Uh, the filler's name is Dickie Stabler. Oh, true, true, true. Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, the filler that is the Stabler family. Oh, my God. Please stop. I think pretty soon we are going to say goodbye to the Stabler children, seeing them every episode. We have seen them every episode so far, yeah. Yeah, we have. This one was not a terribly heavy Maureen episode, but there was something I missed. <laughs> and it really backs up my claims from last episode. Let's get into it. Let's get into I'm it. I'm excited. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Opening scene. Scene. Uh, so this is like a part. I thought it was Central Park at first, but it's. Me too. Yeah, because it kind of, I mean, I guess everything looks like Central Park. I guess it was somewhere up in Linwood and it was in this area. It was called a plain view. So I assume that is. Oh, no, Plainfield. Sorry, Plainfield. So I guess that's where they land planes, right? I assume. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> well, so it's in a plain field. Dun, dun. It's in a plain dun, field. Dun. Uh, Stabler and Benson are walking up to the crime scene. It's kind of packed with people. There's tons of ground cops. There seems to be some witnesses or just like looking loose, um, looking around and they ask what's going on. And the, one of the ground cops brings them up to a pair of boys who look to be about like 10 or 12 um, and lets them know that they found a body in the woods while they were playing football. The victim, the body is Ryan Davies and he's eight years old and he was reported missing by his parents from somewhere between 6 and 6 30 the night before the family still hasn't they're gonna let the family know they're looking for the family here you can can jump in there (laughs) i messed that one up these little boys they are acting their hearts out it's actually they actually do a really nice job 
um, Olivia approaches them and asks what happened. And then she has them go over it again. Um, They tell her that they had been playing ball and it rolled into the woods. And when one of them went in to get it, they found the body. Now, Stabler then leaves Benson with the boys and he walks over to where another officer is standing by where they found the body. And he bends down like by the body bag, kind of steals himself, unzips the body bag, and then he sees the body and sighs very sadly. Already feeling so classic SVU. Now, I I don't know if you noticed, this entire sequence is one shot, which really helps, I think, get you into how fast-paced it is. Like, this is a very fast-paced scene. So you they pull in on Benson and Stabler as they arrive, follow them to where Olivia talked to the boys, and then the camera follows Stabler over to where the body is. And I thought that was a great choice. I did not notice that. That's great. That's why it just feels like really intense and you're like in the thick of it right away. Like they don't cut away from anything. Yeah, like literally a POV versus as we know the last, well, the first five episodes were very choppy, stylized. Not Mm -hmm. choppy in a bad way, but just like, you know, edited. Like so cut here, cut there, cut here, cut there. Sassy remark. This was straightforward facts, right? Even down to the shot. Oh, yeah. So um, and then we immediately cut to Benson and Stabler knocking at the parents' door. The mother answers, and when she sees their badges, she shouts for her husband. Not as melodramatic as fucking stupid Stephen Tanzik's dumbass wife in episode one. No, that was insane. Why? Why? Stephen! <laughs> <laughs> I will forever yell Stephen. Stephen. Jesus. <laughs> All right, now. Dun, 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 bow, 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 the bullpen. Already. Opening into this, we're doing the bullpen scene, and I clenched every part of my body because I'm like, what (laughs) terrible things are about to be shoved upon us? No, the most professional, fluid discussion they have ever had in the bullpen. No one joked about the victim. It was shockingly above board. So Stabler is looking at photos of the victim. He's a very cute eight-year-old boy. Cregan comes in for a little exposition. He's like, what have we learned? And Olivia, okay, I take back how nice I was about them because Olivia goes, no one can handle crimes against children. Like, You know that he's just asking about the case. Like, everyone yeah. shut up, you know? <laughs> he came in, he wants to know about the case. And then um, Monique is wearing a vest over her shirt. So we know it's, this is, this is a serious episode. Yeah. We're not fucking around here. It's not a sleeveless vest situation this time. It's I a t-shirt. It's also now November. So maybe she was like, it's time to button it up a little bit, but. Um, Monique then says people need to get out of sex crimes after two years and I wrote lol so we know this won't be true for half the people here oh yeah sorry two years plus 20 so everyone's chiming in and Cragen's finally like what have we learned about the case yeah thank you because I was thinking that too I'm like we know you're talking about the eight-year-old boy but that's what he needs to know about you can make your weird quips after yeah so So Benson begins to detail uh, how they found Ryan's body. He was found naked from the waist down with signs of sexual assault, ligature marks around the neck, and bruises covering his body. Uh, There were no signs of a struggle, no weapon, and no evidence found at the scene. So Olivia thinks that this crime happened at the marshes behind the field. Again, I could not give you any details about what this place looks like. (laughs) Assume it's a marshes. Picture a marsh in a plain field, and that's where it happened. But she believes that Ryan was probably murdered there because it's very secluded. And Stabler says that Ryan's parents reported him missing 40 hours before the body was found. Uh, time of death was Friday night, although I didn't get the time. Uh, I think they said Friday night around 5 p.m. Okay. Um, and are we now on Monday? I think I'm under the impression he was missing part of the weekend and then... Fuck. 
Is it Monday again? Well, look. I guess I should. Guess I should, I should have looked that, looked that up. up too. Sorry, <laughs> I, that sounded like I sounded like annoyed with you. Like, well, I just meant like I well, can't believe I didn't write that down. As we know in SVU land, they only get new cases on Monday, so they can spend the week solving them. Yeah. That's just how it works. You know, it doesn't happen on Saturday. Crimes don't happen on Saturdays and Sundays. And if they do, they will wait 40 hours They're before. Like, mm, we're, we're fine. It's Kathy Stabler because she's like, my husband needs to be here. So they think he was strangled by hand and not with an item, which is what they definitely said in the beginning, I think, which is weird considering what we find out. I believe they're questioning um, what the bruises are in Olivia says a hand. about how Oh, it's the about bruises the... all over his body. Yes, yes, yes. That's what they're talking about. They don't know at this point what the weapon is for like the ligature. Okay, well, that's good. So that's why we have two people doing these. <laughs> <laughs> it takes two people to recap an SVU episode. It takes two to recap a scene. Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy notes the fact that Ryan um, was transported from A to B and left exposed that he believes the perpetrator was probably a stranger because it was sort of a frantic incident. Yes, it has all the markers of a stranger abduction. The day he went missing, Ryan was going to a comic book shop to get Pokemon cards, um, but he never made it there. And Marishka does the classic mom thing of being like, oh, he's going to get those Pokemon cards. She said Pokemon. I was like, it's just not hard. It's Pokemon. There's an O. Yeah. Where are you getting men from? Where are you getting men? The team decides to head off in different directions to canvas the neighborhood. Stabler is still sitting at his desk and you (laughs) can tell he's going to be a problem this episode. Yeah, he's making it about him. I'm sorry. I understand. Listen, I get it. Stabler is also like secretly emotional. It's kind of funny because you can tell when he's gearing up to be a problem for an episode. Cause oh, he's yeah. like he's like staring at the body. He's like he's taking he's got pictures. He's like <laughs> caressing a kid's photo. It's like you don't even know this kid. God, Cut it Stabler. out. Overall, though, much more respectful banter um, yes. between even Jeffries and Munch. Jeffries questions why parents will let their eight year old walk around at night. And Munch replies that helicopter parenting creates paranoia neuroses of their own. I know it. And I have to say, I just. There just doesn't seem to be a happy medium. It's no. like you need to teach your kids independence, but then there are horrible people out there. So what do you do? Dun dun. Ryan Davies school. Munch and Cassidy. Another kind of Munch and Cassidy heavy episode, but they are respectful. They are for so, once. Thank God. They're kind of discussing having kids of their own. Um, this is like a recurring theme. They're like, hey, do you want kids? Haha, <laughs> no, probably not. And then that gets cut off because they approach a group of very startled mothers. And their daughter selling Girl Scout cookies. The bitchy mom is like, who are you? Even though they look like cops. They literally are wearing trench coats. And even if you didn't know, like, Cassie's kind of cute. So, oh, yeah. I'd, I'd be, like, be like, hi. What's your fine ass approaching me for? Looking all stupid. I said, like, a pedophile is going to approach while there's, like, a group of moms there. So Munch and Cassidy asked the group if any of them knew Ryan Davies. And one of the girl goes, I ate at his house one time. Which I'm like, what do you mean you ate at his did you go to play? But Cassidy gets down on the girl's level and starts to kind of, you know, quietly ask them like, hey, you know, we're trying to figure out who might have hurt Ryan. Did you hear anything about who might have hurt him? Do you know who might have hurt him? These are very specific questions he asks. Yes. The little girls, all three of them, get very nerved up looking. They look nervous. They look nervous. The one that looks like Molly from American Girl Dolls is the one that answers. And she says, two boys two older boys mike d and jimmy g and she says it like that and i'm sorry i know that was bad emoting but i just want to make a note that they sounded really fucking nervous when they were saying this yes also i want to note on imdb the cookies they're selling are some canadian brand of cookies and imdb is like i literally have no idea why these girl scouts would be selling canadian brand cookies so munch and cassidy go off to find 
Mike D from the Beastie Boys and Jimmy Garoppolo from the 49ers. I literally thought I was like, Brittany's going to have to bring up that his name is not have to bring up, but Brittany will as a Beastie Boys fan. Oh my God. Every time he's like, I'm Mike D. I'm like, I'm Mike D and I get respect. Your cash and your jewelry is what I expect. Actually, if you want to find that audio, I'll find that audio. We can put that in there. I'm Mike D and I get respect. Your cash and your jewelry is what I expect. It's time for me to spread my wings and learn how to fly. Spread your wings. Editing. Munch and Cassidy uh, locate Mike D and Jimmy G. They're teenagers. I guess they're like kind of, I guess, late in life teenagers. (laughs) Is that what you call them? They're Leonardo DiCaprio girlfriend age teenagers. Yes. They um, look like they're 30. Um, They're dressed like they're 16 or 17. So I think that's what they're supposed to be. Also, we're saying Mike D and Jimmy G. That's what they go by. No, those are their names. Munch rolls up and he's like, are you Jimmy G? And he goes, no, I'm Mike D. (laughs) And I get respect. He gets respect. And then Jimmy G, they're skateboarding, of course. He comes up on his skateboard. He's like, hey, what's up? And everything (laughs) Jimmy G says is screaming. And he looks like he's about to sneeze or or dick someone out. Oh, yeah. He's got like a very like tense nose. Like his nose always looks like it's cocked. Mike D is a young Willem Dafoe. Oh, he's so hot. So hot. And he's got a little bit of hot guy swag. Wow, Mm. we spent so much time talking about these beautiful (laughs) men. So just to set up their personalities again, Mike D is, he's a little more docile, chill, kind of a cool guy vibe. Um, just a little bit like a construction worker. Jimmy G is a bull in the china shop, screaming. He's got the 90s kind of like Nick Carter cut, but it's like way above his ears. He looks like someone who'd be like, what's up, what's up? Yeah, like, hey, what's up, ladies? Like that type of, like, <laughs> this guy definitely would walk up to you and say, ladies. Ladies. Um, actually, he gives me Mark Wahlberg energy. Yes. And not uh, in like a hot way, because I don't, I don't actually like Mark Wahlberg. I think he's kind of a fucking clown, but um, like takes himself like seriously, but it's like funny. So Munch asks him if they know Ryan and Jimmy shouts, I live like two houses down from him. And then his <laughs> mouth is just a gape. Munch asks if they saw anything Friday night. And Mike D, the hot calm one, starts to give some sass. And he says that he saw a lot of things. So Munch sees his target of sass. He's like, fuck you, dude. And so then they tell him that they um, saw a weird older dude who has been riding his bike around. Yeah. Uh, he's been riding his bike around the school, I guess Ryan Davies school, at the same time every day, two hours after school gets out. Uh, they started seeing him about a month ago, and they know his name. His name is Turbot, Bill Turbot, and he hides out in his apartment in Linwood. Which, I'm like, how do you know where his apartment is? Right. If you see strangers riding around you, are you ever like, I know where their apartment is? <laughs> oh, I don't want to give it away, but there's a lot of evidence in this very conversation. <laughs> Guys, just pick up on the vibes we're trying to give you. Our show, our episodes are all spoilers. They're all spoilers. So. <laughs> and again, it's kind of a retrospective. So like most of it is people if you've seen it. But yeah, um, they happen to know this guy's name. They know his little schedule. They know where his apartment is. Um, and I wrote, how do they know so much about him? Oh, my God. I literally am just reading that note. I wrote, I'm like, <laughs> well, this isn't our first rodeo. The boys make fun of Munch and Cassidy as Munch and Cassidy turn to leave. Mike D goes, hey. I thought Men in Black was lamb. <laughs> they are so Beavis and Butthead. So stupid. And so Munch roasts them back um, about appropriating black culture. Wow. A very different man from five episodes I ago. I know. Munch is now our woke king. And Cassidy, not to be outdone, gives them a finger gun. Not double finger guns, like we're not Shooter McGavin here, but just kind of goes. Boom. <laughs> and the boys look hurt. So you already like dropped your cards there. Well, Paige, I think in the 90s, a finger gun meant something. Dun, dun dun! Turbot's apartment. 
Benson and Stabler are on the scene. So now we got Benson and Stabler back. Bill Turbot is very quiet. Um, he's very socially awkward. He seems pretty friendly, but it's like he speaks in a proper kind of halting way. Yes. He's a little unnerving, but he seems innocent enough. He seems like the type of guy that if you caught his eye at the bar, he would start talking to you and you'd feel obligated to continue speaking to him and he would talk to you about like his boring interests. You know, he'd be like, oh, I'm really into magpies. But he seems like the kind of guy where if you shut him down, he'd go away. Yes, but then you'd, you'd, the rest of the night, you'd be thinking about it. You'd be like, oh my God, that poor lonely guy, (sighs) just shut him down. All I want to do is talk about magpies with me. So this is Bill Turbot. Yes. Um, Bill Turbot is played by Stephen Bug Artis. And Dick Wolf must really like him. He has appeared in Law and Order Proper, SVU, and Criminal Intent. So he's done like the Trinity. Um, and in fact, he'll actually be back in a few seasons on SVU. So we will see him again. He's really good because he does a good job. Like this guy is not innocent, um, but it, I felt bad for him the whole time. Yeah. I really did have a lot of sympathy for him. And I think it's purely because he played pathetic so well. This guy's pathetic. Yeah, he's pathetic. He's. But Steven. Is a good actor. Like, yes. this was well done. Steven's not pathetic. As Elliot and Olivia are questioning him about liking the park, he's giving Elliot a glass of water. He's basically saying he likes the trees and the grass. The park's very calming for him. And again, he seems kind of ex- not excited that they're there, but he seems to enjoy the company. He does. He's not suspicious. Nope. He's very, like, he's telling them all about how he likes to ride his bike, you know, and stuff. And he seems kind of proud of this feature of himself. And then Stabler kind of comes in saying, oh, well, it's unusual for a grown man to like to hang out where kids play. And Turbot's like, it's a public space. And I just ride that way home from work. It helps me clear my mind. So Turbot talks about how he likes riding his bike because it's better for the planet. Um, he really loves his bike, except he thinks someone may be jealous of it because it's been moved around. It's normally covered and chained behind the apartment, but it's been fucked, fucked with. Actually, the chain was stolen recently. Yes. Um, so then they tell him they're investigating the murder of a little boy and ask him if he's seen anything the last few days. And he's like, nope, on Friday after work, I went straight to this tavern and I stayed there for a few hours. Turby gets this look on his face and he says, oh, no. And he sits down immediately. Yeah. Because, you know, he's like, oh, OK, you didn't just come over to hang out and talk. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess he should have known. So Stabler goes at that point to put his glass of water down on the frame stamp collection that's on Turbot's coffee table. I thought that was rude. I thought that was super rude. And then Turbot understandably freaks out and not like a rude way. He's like, hey, 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 like, don't do that. Like when someone's about to like put like a wet towel on like your wooden table or something, you just say, hey, hey, or we could like put it on the table. It's so rude. And then when like Turbot understandably freaks out, Stabler and Olivia are like, oh, oh oh my God, ew, what's happening? Yeah, like, like, don't you have any fucking manners? Seriously. And like, even if, and then later on, Stabler goes, I went to go touch his damn collection, which is not what you were going to do, but also don't touch. I know. That's a lie. You were going to set your glass of water down on it. You disrespectful. I'm so mad at Stabler this episode. No, because again, it's just him starting drama. He just enters in rooms and starts drama. He's starting shit. It's making me angry. It's aggravating me. Dun dun. Outside Turbot's apartment. I also want to make a note. Uh, Turbot like kind of went to go show them his bike. He was like, yeah, you want to see my bike? And they were like, no, nah, that's OK. And then they started hassling about other things. Um, so done, done. Um, outside of Turbot's apartment, Benson and Stabler are kind of chatting about what a weirdo he was. And then they notice his bike on the side of the house and um, they decide they're going to take dirt samples from it. So first of all. And also Olivia runs over like she's found a secret. Yeah. Like, like how you were saying he offered to show them the bike. They said no. And then they get outside and Olivia's like, oh. Oh, here it is. Here's the bike. I'm like, 
bike he fucking offered to show you he was literally walking towards the door being like i have a classic cruiser you know like just he was excited to show them yeah they're dicks they're weird and then they were like we're gonna collect dirt samples from it and i'm like is this legal it, i think i think olivia's po- like pointing it out is where it was was somewhere where it was legal to take a sample from you know how oh. like if you put your trash out the police can go, go through, through your trash legally right no okay so that makes sense that's why we have two people Dun dun station. Cragen tells Liv and Elliot that the lab is testing the dirt that they got off Turbot's bike against what was found on Ryan's body. Uh, Jeffries is running Turbot's background, so they're going to find out some stuff from Jeffries. As always, she's always running in with info. So Elliot goes, yeah, the guy freaked out because I almost touched his stamp collection. I know, I just said that, but I'm so mad at him. You did not try to touch his stamp collection. You tried to put a a water glass down on it like it was a table, and it was not. You're wrong. Right. And it's like, I don't care if you don't get it. Like, I don't get it either. I don't think stamps are interesting. I am making this so insidious in my head. I'm picturing Stabler, like, back at the station. He's like, yeah, I, that was really rude what I did. He's like, you know, what? I'm going to rewrite history. And then he breaks in. He's like, yeah. And then remember when I tried to touch his stamp collection and he freaked out and I was really polite. And I said, Bill, can I please touch your stamp collection? And Bill was like, fuck you, man. Bill became a dragon. <laughs> he ripped off all his skin and he became a dragon and he attacked me. And then he said he was going to molest my son, Dickie. <laughs> and then Stabler sits back. He's like, I did a good job covering up what I did. I'm on to you. I watched you do that. I was not fooled. I watched what you did. I know what you did. I'm you so glad we're in agreement because I thought that I was like, he went to go put his wet ass glass down on an ex- bet, like on a stamp collection. Um, Liv says, co- she co-signs, says that Herbert was strange that they need to search his apartment. So Cragen says they need more proof and to bring Turbot in for a lineup so that the two jerk boys can ID him. I think Cragen, these few episodes, has been very good about creating kind of um, just trying to be accountable at every turn. So even though they know this is the guy that Mike D and Jimmy D were talking about, they, I think he wants this to be such a solid case that he's like, okay, we're going to do it the right way, bring them in, show them a bunch of dweeby guys. Which, okay, I'm, glad I'm giving away the next scene. <laughs> I'm glad you're here to explain that to me because once again, I was like, is this legal? But I guess I was thinking, is it legal for them to be like, hey, Turbot, you need to come in for a lineup because you're creepy. I don't know what your rights are if you, um, if they want you to come in for a lineup. I would think you may, probably you can re- reject this, but it would look bad against you. Like how you can reject getting a breathalyzer, but they can arrest you based on that good point it's i think it's probably something like that dun dun and this happens really quickly they basically bring turbot in for a lineup mike d from the beastie boys and jimmy garoppolo are there and they both positively id built yeah jimmy d makes sure to shout he was riding by the school the day ryan davies disappeared <laughs> no one no one but officers porter and agrella thinks that's strange <laughs> i know i'm like sir do you think we should go down another line of questioning um, there's something that curly headed girl who looked like Molly from American Girl Doll said earlier that I'd like to follow up on. They're like, no, we need to follow this Bill Turbot guy who we've just been bullying incessantly. These two really trustworthy seeming boys who hang out on bridges. <laughs> dun, dun dun. Separate interrogation room. Oh, because they were in an interrogation room, I guess, to do the lineup. Anyway, I don't know why I wrote that. So Turbot's there. And they're questioning him. He again tells them he was at the bar when Ryan went missing. He tells them that he had just acquired a special stamp called an inverted Jenny and he wanted to drink to celebrate. 
so again they always get me with this really sad writing i'm like so sweet i know i was like oh <laughs> stabler asks if turbot knows ryan davies um Liv interrupts and asks who he drank with and spoke with at the bar instead um because stabler kind of was like you know ryan davies <laughs> It's like, chill out. We get it. You're a fucking dad. I just want to go back to episode one again, where Olivia was just a little teeny tiny bit upset about having to investigate the murder of a rapist war War criminal. criminal. And Craig knows like, she's off the squad if she can't chill out. In this fucking episode, Stabler's like, do you know Ryan Davies? Do you know Ryan Davies? Did you murder and kill him? And did you rape him? In weeks, it took seven weeks for that to crumble. (laughs) (laughs) Turbot tells them that he was just playing cards with some guys. He doesn't know who they are, but he was there and they could be his alibi. Yeah, he was playing cards with some guys at the bar. So Jeffries opens the door. She interrupts the whole thing and pulls out Liv and Stabler into the hallway, leaving Turbot in the interrogation room. And she confirms that Turbot was previously convicted of child molestation um, of a boy who was the same age as Ryan Davies. Yes, it happened 11 years ago. He did his time. He was paroled. And she does say that he's done everything he's supposed to, like checking in with his parole officer. And he's, you know, done everything by the book. And again, just to note, um, so Jeffries is trying to calmly explain the details of the information she is bringing them. And as soon as she opens her mouth, Stabler starts going, convicted of what? Convicted of what? Convicted of what? And she's like, let me get there. I know. It's very, what's in the box? Yes, yes. It is exclu- <laughs> It is so, what's in the box? Let Jeffrey's fucking talk. She only gets like 10 seconds every episode. Maybe just like let her fucking speak, Stabler. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Turbot's apartment. We are outside Turbot's apartment with Benson and Stabler, and they are approaching his front door, and there is a literal angry mob outside. An angry mob of parents. Um, The bitchy mom from earlier who are like, who are you? To Munch and Cassidy's here. I don't like her for some reason, even though she's just trying to defend her daughter. No, because they were like, why weren't we informed of this? And then Stabler is telling them to calm down. And the parents tell Stabler, two of the parents, so bitchy lady from earlier, and then tall kind of hot dad. Oh, yeah. Tall, angry, hot dad. Yeah. Like, not hot, like, you know, like hot, but like, kind of, you're, you're like, fine. I'll sleep with you. Cute. Yeah. Like at the bar. These two people tell Benson and Stabler that... Turbot, their children have been alone with Turbot before. And when the mother goes, that stamp collection, he used it to lure my daughter into his house. It's like, okay, why are you letting your children go into a grown ass man's house to look at stamps? Yeah. That whole sentence is wrong. I would, without knowing anything about Turbot's priors, if my kid was like, oh, I went into the neighbor's house and looked at his stamp collection, I would go over there. I'd be like, you are not to interact with my children, child one-on-one. If I don't know you, no. No, there's no need for adults to be interacting with children like that. Like, Absolutely I not. I bl- honestly, I blame these parents. Fucking. Yeah. Yeah, the parents are just like ranting and raving. They're like, we let our kids be alone with them. That's on you. That's on you. That's stranger danger one-on-one. An adult being like, oh, come see my collection of literally anything. Yeah. No, especially if it's like pictures or something like stamps. Like, no. God. So they take, um, I believe they like go in and take Turbot or we like cut off with them about to go in and take Turbot, right? Why were they there? They're there to search Turbot's apartment. They were there to search. Okay. Turbot is locked up current, is is back at the station locked up and they are there to search it. Right. Okay. Good to know. Dun, 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 dun. Back at the station. So BNS and Cragen are speaking with, I think the police captain from Turbot's old neighborhood. Yes, that's who it is. I wrote a man and I'm like, 
Why did I write that? I don't know what I mean. But now I remember the scene and I don't know. Yeah. So there's two men. There's one who's who's a decorated police officer. He appears to be the police captain of, I believe, Turbot's old neighborhood and also a prison chaplain. Yes. And that took a minute for us to get to because at first I thought it was like his attorney. Yes. He was like in plain clothes. She'll be here later. Captain Other Guy says that when Turbot was released, he personally evaluated him and decided that Turbot wasn't a threat anymore. And... They kept the information from the public specifically to avoid an angry mob situation. And I'm like, well, that's hard to deny now that it's happened. Yeah. I, I'm so... Because Olivia goes, okay, so the right of the community versus the right of the individual. And I'm like, I don't know the answer. Well, and then the guy does say that the public could have very easily looked up Turbot's information, that it's public information on the internet, or like he, they could have gone to any police department, I guess, to look this up. But, and I think this might, I don't know if we didn't do this research, but... I know that there are rules in certain states where um, pedophiles or sexual offenders have to identify themselves to their neighbors. I believe he was supposed to. Okay. Like, they went against protocol not doing that, and I think the captain just kind of made this decision where he was like, okay, well, these people are going to flip out, so let's just, like, not tell them, which... Right. It's kind of like, okay, I guess he was right because the parents are flipping out, but at the same time, they should have been told. Exactly. And the uh, the prison chaplain kind of chimes in at this point, and he says that... He knew that Turbot had changed during his time in prison, that he became a God-fearing man. Okay. Um, and that, that's, so he's co-signing the captain. They're both yes. kind of sticking up for Turbot and being like, he's not going to re-offend. He's not a danger. The stapler reminds the chaplain and the other captain of what Turbot did to his first victim, saying that the boy was on his stomach in the hospital for four weeks. Um, God, stapler. And we do find out that the night the Turbot attacked the child, he was hot, um, Super high on what what they call an STP cocktail. So STP, I looked this up. It's basically combining, oh God, MDMA and something else. And basically it's it's combining two like a psychedelic with MDMA, I think. And whatever it does, it just like fucks you up a lot. And then I read that it takes a while to kick in. So you might do the first dose and then you take another one and you get you just get super messed up. And that's essentially what happened. There's a big scientific name for what STP is, and uh, it was, like, too long, and I'm not going to say it. Look it up. I didn't, you know, it's funny. Not I didn't you. even look it up. I'm glad <laughs> you did. I was like, I wonder what STP means. Oh, well. It's just, like, I, get, it's, I guess it's something no one does anymore, because it seemed like it might have been a problem in, like, the 90s, and now people just, like, back, like, how, like, they used to do lewds, like, nobody's business, and now you can't do lewds anymore. Remember Salvia? People were doing that, because they oh, were yeah. like, it's synthetic weed, and then it would make you tear your face off, and it's like, huh. I know. Never, you never hear about people doing salvage anymore. No. According to the retelling of the story, I guess I think it's Stabler that's telling the story. Turbot's first victim knocked on his door selling candy bars and Turbot attacked him. The neighbors heard screaming and called the police and they found the boy lying on the floor unconscious and Turbot was in a corner screaming. So the cop corrects Stabler and he goes, no, the boy was unconscious. The screams the neighbors heard were Turbot because he was like flipping out. He was having a really bad trip and he thought, boy was dead and his corpse was attacking him so when they the police arrived he was cowering in the corner like shaking screaming so i did kind of go oh but then i went so did he not rape the boy no i'm he did he did so sorry other guys but even if he was screaming in terror because he thought the boy was dead i do want to make a quick note here um Paige and i are going to be sympathetic on and off to turbot but we do not co-sign what he did in oh, any no. way, shape, or form. It was confusing because, again, I was like, wait, so why is this guy acting like, what, he suddenly is innocent because he was screaming I in know. a drug-fueled terror? We're going to say nice things about him, but we're also going to 
be very clear that he is a violent offender. And there's a ethically, this is a very interesting episode, and it we're going to get to that later. And again, it's very like when actors play the character so well, much like Turbot's. Well, the actor who played Turbot did. You do have that weird in between where you're like, I feel really bad for this yeah. guy, but he did something really disgusting. Yeah. Um, dun dun. We're at like some jail <laughs> where Turbot's being held. Yes. Um, Susan from Friends is here. Um, I believe her name is Jessica Hecht. Um, but she plays the lawyer, right? Yeah, the lawyer. So she's I know you're not a huge Friends fan. Um, Ross is married at the beginning of the show and he's getting divorced because his wife turns out that she realizes that she's into women and leaves him for a woman. This is her. Oh, Susan is like the other mother of Ross's son because she ends up marrying Ross's ex-wife. So I know her from I just recently <laughs> binged all of The Sinner. Um, okay, The Sinner's a good show, but I didn't like it. Do you oh, know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's a good show, but I didn't really like it, but I watched the whole thing. So she was in season three and four. Um, season three is the best season. It's so good. Uh, it had Danny Catalano. Oh! Oh, yeah, he's amazing. Mm. Um, and Matthew Chris Bomer. Messina? Is that his name? Yes, Chris Messina. I okay. couldn't remember. So Jessica. Um, she says that the blood test they want for Turbot is unethical and it's against his constitutional rights. And I said, why? I'm pretty sure if you're accused of a crime, they can, take, they can get a warrant for your blood. They have a court order, so it's happening regardless. Turbot is refusing the test because he doesn't like needles. And I laughed. I'm sorry. It made me feel bad. I was like. But at the same time, I'm like, don't commit crimes if you don't want your blood taken. So he fights them and he's he's crying and saying, no, no. Um. Sir, there's been a murder. I, I understand, <laughs> but like, there's been a fucking like an eight year old dead. I'm, I'm sorry, but so they hold him down and draw his blood while Susan from Friends screams at them. But yeah, that does no good. They get the blood sample. Me as a lawyer, I'd be like, "Yo, what the fuck?" I know the fuck off my client, you pieces of shit. <laughs> I know. Dun 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 dun. The Davies house. So the parents are escorting Benson and Stabler back to their car. Um, and Linda, the mom, asks if they ever found his glasses. She pulls a mind. I know. Off. Honestly, that actually took me out a little bit. She's like, he can't see without his glasses. I was like, all right. She was like, did you ever find his glasses? And they were like, no, we're so sorry, Mrs. Davies. We're still looking for the glasses. And she goes, he can't see without them. She doesn't have a panic attack. Like yeah. Sharona does. What's her name? Is it Verona? In My Girl? Yeah. I've never seen Mine Girl. I just know the reference. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Because it's one of those movies where I never wanted to see it because of the chicken bone shit. Oh, yeah. Everyone's like, ah, oh, the chicken. And then, you know, everyone's like, Macaulay Culkin dies and it's so sad. It, it kind of, it's a little bit of an Uncle Buck changeling. Oh. Not changeling so much, but it's definitely a bit of an Uncle Buck where you're like, I get it. Like, this is a good movie for adults, but as a kid, it's a little bit terrifying. Yeah. No, I totally get that. So I just have never had an interest. One podcast we should sit and tell each other all the movies that we've never seen that make people mad. Ooh, yeah. That's always fun. Wait, I had one recently. I've never seen E.T. Doesn't make me mad, but it makes me go, why? (laughs) I know why, though, because it's kind of an Uncle Buck changeling. I'm going to stop saying changeling. It's an Uncle Buck. I think it's more of an Uncle Buck. Yeah. Um, I think, so I've seen parts of it. There there are, I I should clarify, I've seen parts of E.T. And I was so young when I saw those that it just kind of like turned me off of ever wanting to watch it. The whole thing is kind of like, like I remember the frog scene, obviously that upset me. Um, maybe that's the origin of my frog hatred, but it was always, it was dark, you know? Yeah, it's a very, I think I'm just. Not even just mood dark. Like the, it's like a fit, the, the lighting is dark. It's just dark. It's a there. dark movie. I didn't know that was Drew Barrymore because everyone's like, that's Drew Barrymore. And I'm like, I can't see that kid's face. <laughs> I, so I, 
It might be one of those things where my parents just didn't like E.T., so I never saw it. That's something, and yeah. Then sometimes you just get to an age where you haven't seen a movie and you're like, okay, well, now I'm never going to see that movie. Right. And again, like, it was weird. I almost went to, like, not argue with you, but be like, oh, my God, but why have you seen E.T.? And I'm like, I can think of, like, 10,000 reasons. And really, the only reason to see it right now is that it's E.T. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, I don't want to at this point. <laughs> we digress. We digress. Now, randomly, we're at a Stabler family picnic. Uh, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Stabler approaches a table filled with his family. Kathleen and Elizabeth are playing patty cake or something. Maureen's overdressed. She's in a little date outfit. Now, Paige, this is all to remind us, in case we've forgotten, Stabler is a father. He is a father of children. 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 And and frankly, a young father at that. (laughs) A young father whose parents were like, oh, you're 27. You can't go have kids. So he rolls up and immediately hangs his blazer around his girlfriend Maureen's shoulders. Oh, you know, just like what a good boyfriend does for their girlfriend. Paige has gotten in my head and now I hate this. Who the fuck does that? I know. Kathleen's like right there and he's like, no, I must put my coat around Maureen. Now, granted, Maureen's overdressed for this family picnic. She's in like a pink matching set. Right. It's like, who are you trying to impress? Oh my God. It's Elliot Stabler. Also, Kathy reminds him that he's late. She goes, oh, we couldn't wait any longer for you. Shut up, Kathy. We get it. He's investigating an eight-year-old's murder, but whatever. So Stabler goes, uh, where's Dickie? No one is panicking at all. He has been there for a solid two seconds. He arrives. Kathy says, couldn't wait for you any longer. He hits on Maureen, looks up and goes, where's Dickie? It's been two seconds and this man is ready to start drama. Oh, yeah. So Kathy's like, he's, he's playing ball over there. And Stabler runs off as though he's missing. And we thought, that, I was kind of thinking, I'm like, oh, fuck. They like, now we're going to get yelled at by Stabler because Dickie's not going to be over there. No, when I say a stone's throw, it would have been dangerous to throw a stone. Yes. He would have hit Dickie. That's how close he was. <laughs> See, he's literally playing ball with them. It looks like some older boys. Yeah. Um, and so Stabler runs over, embarrasses him and picks him up and grabs him and hugs him. And Dickie goes, what's wrong, daddy? Are you mad? Mm. Mm-mm. Mm. 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 Wow. Mm. I wonder if he's seen his father angry before. Oh, irrationally angry. Mm. 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 So I don't like Dickie Stabler. I love him this episode. He's so funny. He's like my little comic relief. Yeah, he's kind of like calling out his dad. He's like, what's up, dad? What's the fucking... Dickie is somehow able to call out Stabler in a way that Maureen Stabler could never. No. You know why? Because there's no tension between Dickie and Stabler. So I have this book I bought and it's like the SVU like unofficial companion. And in the write-up for this episode, the, um, the writer goes, do you think it's starting to freak Stabler out that each week his case correlates to his children? <laughs> <laughs> and I am deceased because I'm like, oh my God, every episode they deal with models while Maureen's having a anorexic crisis. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a two-day-long anorexic crisis. What was the deal with the one where um, Kathleen's friend is pregnant? What was the case? Oh, okay. That was, oh God, now they're all- uh, The murdered- girl who turned out not to be a sex worker was that yeah i think yeah yeah episode four and then um the episode where more our very last episode where maureen stayed out late and then it was the same night a girl got murdered so i'm dead seriously every single episode matches up with something in stabler's personal life do you think he's like huh i have a son i mean i guess i could do that like i could make everything apply to my life i'm like well, I did do that with Gretchen's case. I'm like, oh, Gretchen, a 32-year-old single hoe. Living in New York City. Living in New York, a writer. Actually, she's living the cooler parts of my life. I never got to work out. I'm not a hoe. 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> dun dun. Dun dun. <laughs> so we are at the tavern. We're at the tavern where Turbot frequents it, but also was there the night that Ryan died. Uh, the bartender says that Turbot is a paycheck drinker, so he comes in every other week to like spend his whole paycheck. Um, judgy, mind your own business. Judgy, but he does confirm that he was there on Friday. So Stabler then asks if he saw him playing cards with anyone. And instead of answering, the bartender comes over and is like, look, I have a daughter. He's around the same age as that boy. Another person who can't go two minutes without reminding us that they are a father. I would really love it if the fathers of the world showed as much dedication. <laughs> I'm a father. Fathers are kind of a theme because that comes up again later. Um, so Stabler's like, okay. And he asks again, um, when did Turbot leave? And was he playing cards with somebody? Was he playing cards? The bartender says that Turbot left for a few hours, but then came back looking upset. And this really weird look has um, got, like come over his face, like almost like you see him making a decision to tell a story. It is very, this is not a spoiler because it is very kind of clear obvious. to us, the viewer, that he's lying. Yeah. He gets his look on his face kind of like, um, I don't know. I think he left for a few hours. You can't see my head, but I'm moving my head around as though I'm a damsel in distress. And lying. And lying. Exactly. You could just tell he's lying. (laughs) And Detective Detective Stabler watches this pass over his face and you can see him clock it and you see him make the decision to write down this information and not question it. Right. I will I will be back to this and I will be very pissed about it. This Sorry. is the only, we, we were going on about how great this episode was, but that was a few, there yes. were a few things that were like, uh, yeah, what? <laughs> um, dun, dun, Turbot's house. Munch and Cassidy are supervising the pickup of Turbot Spike, and they're discussing having kids again. Yeah, it's, they essentially have like the same conversation they had last time. Yeah, they're kind of, it's a little more detailed now where um, like Cassidy is talking about how he would want kids, but like the things that they see at work kind of make him feel like, is it even worth it? Because they see so much evil. And then he goes to Munch like, Hey, would you want kids? And Munch says something about like he wouldn't want. It's actually really cute. He goes, he's like, I don't like the responsibility. And Cassidy's like, oh, for them. And Munch is like, I don't want to give them the responsibility of me, which I thought was like funny and self-aware. Very likable. And frankly, so it's kind of like they both decide they'd just be terrible at it, um, which I think is a lot of what people without kids feel like. Yeah. Mostly because you fuckers with kids make it sound like it's this thing. Ugh. Sorry. It's not a thing. Mothers and fathers. And non-binary parents out there, y'all think you're so cool. Yeah. Y'all think you're better than us. Hmm. You're not. You're not. Okay. I'm going to look younger than you. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) This is Uh, the episode Paige and I finally lose it. (laughs) Is this a good, like, position for us to take as a podcast where, like, we're anti-parent on Elite Squad? Yeah, because you, I, we both want kids. We're just anti-parents. So, like, we're not anti-kids. No, kids are delightful. Kids are great. I'm anti-parents. Yeah. The forensics office. Um, so Turbot's bike is laying there in pieces, also That's with the sad. chain they collected. That does make me sad. A lab tech that I feel like we see a few more times. I was wondering if this was the lab tech. I feel like I remember his ponytail. So the lab tech tells them that the soil sample they collected from the bike matches the neighborhood, but it's like... An, it's dirt that's found in that area anyway so it doesn't it doesn't mean anything no yeah it's not enough um he then points out that the ligature marks on ryan's neck and there is a literal life-size photo of ryan's neck dead neck um on the board and he says that the ligature marks found on ryan's neck are of like kind of a pattern and he's like oh it's like some type of pattern like and he says it kind of like oh what is that detectives porter and agrella immediately look at it and it's a fucking chain print it's a bike chain we're print. not an idiot yeah <laughs> it's i mean and then olivia goes hey 
takes the bike change because is this a life-size photo and he's like yeah i'm like wow how convenient and then she holds it up to the picture of ryan's neck and it's a match so it's a perfect match it's a perfect match so it would appear that ryan was strangled by turban's perbit i'm sorry turban turbit's bike chain um, the only other important part of this scene is that the glasses still have not shown up. They make a throwaway comment about that. Right. Still no glasses. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Uh, Lisa Tharps is the person who plays this ADA. Yes. She still doesn't have a name. She never gets a name. Um, I believe I kind of gave her background in the last episode of Wanderlust. And yeah. She's from Sharon, Massachusetts, and she plays AD, this AD, unnamed ADA. I think she does a great job. I love her. I'm guessing she's more of a Broadway actress because she does not have a ton of other roles on her IMDb, but she's clearly a working actress. Yeah. So Lisa says that they're still waiting for a DNA match from Turbot's bike chain, but Benson says it's a perfect match according to the photos. So just do what I say, Lisa. Yes. Um... So they go over what they have to Lisa. They tell her they have the two eyewitnesses that place Turbot at the scene and a bartender who can basically like blow holes in his alibi. Yeah. And she says, she volunteers, Lisa does, um, that there was the incident 12 years ago with the boy Turbot attacked. And so they're trying to basically, because they want to convince Lisa to prosecute. Yes. And she's thinking that they don't have enough evidence yet. So Lisa says they need to go talk to Turbot's victim from 12 years ago and see if the MOs match up. Yes. Liv says that the boy still lives in the city. His name is Christopher James, and he's almost 21. Lives with his mother. Okay, who cares? Um, so Lisa tells them, go see if the uh, Mo's match. Yes. Uh, before we move on from this scene, um, we're in Cragen's office, and there's just a lot of shit on his desk I want to talk about. First of all, he now has moved the red vines to a glass jar. Oh my God, you're so good with this. I, I truly keep forgetting to look for them. So the red vines are once again back, and then he, I noticed he has a bunch of toys on his desk. He has a signed baseball and what appears to be like a Santa Pez dispenser and a cup with his pens. I don't know if it's items to like kind of brighten up his office. Like what are they trying to tell us about him with these yeah. items, you know? Um, I will have more toy notes later. I'm a toy collector, so I appreciate that. Dun dun! Christopher James's house. So just a reminder, Christopher James was Turbot's victim from 12 years ago. He was around eight years old when Turbot attacked him. Christopher does not look like he's almost 21. No, he looks like he's our age. Yeah. 30. He looks like he was finishing up his third master's degree. Uh, so he's very obviously an adult here. He looks like an older adult than he is, but he's, he dresses like a child. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's very... Um, like how your mom dresses you for Sunday. Yeah, he looks like... It's really sad, kind of like a class picture. Yeah. Like he's very... got like a sweater vest and like a little bow tie over like a long sleeve button up. And we kind of made the note um, before we started recording that it's a little strange choice that they made. Christopher's personality is very similar to Turbot's. Yes. Very nervous, socially awkward. Clearly there's trauma involved in why he's acting like that. But they have very similar kind of cadence and behavior. And even their interests are a little bit similar. They even look similar. They're white guys with kind of like angular faces and... Very light blonde hair. Yeah, like, uh, and this is not, I'm not trying to be flip here, but it seems like they would get along. You yeah. Know what I mean, that's just, they, it's like the same person is what we're trying to say. So Benson tells Christopher that they think Turbot has hurt another boy. Christopher looks nervously around. Um, he's obviously stunted. He's traumatized. Yeah. But he agrees to speak to Olivia uh, about his attack, which I thought was very, I think it was supposed to set up that it was very brave of him because yes. he was feeling for this other victim. Olivia kind of nods to Stabler and he walks off with the mother. You can tell he is going to be more comfortable one-on-one with Olivia. 
Christopher sitting down across from Olivia and he begins to recount the events of the day where he met Turbot and Turbot attacked him. He said he was selling candy bars and that he insisted on going out alone without his mother that day because he was a big boy. So it's, he got, it's heartbreaking how he says that. Like he's like, I was a big boy. He got to Turbot's house and Turbot invited him in. Ryan said that he had to use the restroom. So mm-hmm. again, we don't know if Turbot initiated or Ryan asked. Doesn't really matter, but those were two things. Um, when Ryan came out of the restroom, it's creepy. Um, Gross. Oh, because you can picture being a kid. When Christopher came out of the restroom, Turbot asked Christopher to play with him. Mm-hmm. And he wanted him to ride his back and pretend that he was a donkey. So Christopher said Turbot took off his belt and used it as a harness and he got down on all fours. And this freaked <sighs> out Christopher. He did not want to play. And then when he refused, Turbot takes the belt, wraps it around Christopher's neck, and then forces him down. Um, he then assaults Christopher until he passes out. And I want to shout out, um, this is, I believe his name is Torquil Campbell, sick name. But th- this is a great performance. He does an amazing job. He's crying, but in a very um, composed. composed way. He's just like gently like, like brushing tears out of his eyes. He does a great job. It's a very, very moving scene. Yeah, I got teary-eyed too, because even without the great acting, just the parameters of that scene because you remember what it's like to be a kid and come across something very jarring and not normal or an adult that's acting erratically, you know. It's something that doesn't make sense to you. You're like, okay, I, I know this is wrong. Like something's wrong here, but I don't know what to do about it. And picturing, I just got chills, a man getting down on all fours and saying like, Get on play my back. with me. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It made my blood just kind of. Yeah. Because it's just disturbing. Like, and you don't know how to rationalize it as a child. And I'm very grateful that the show chose to do this quick scene with Christopher because um, it's very easy to be sympathetic to Turbot throughout the show. Because, because like we said, the actor's doing a really good job and yeah. he plays pathetic really well. So you end up kind of sympathizing with him. And we get to see this victim and we actually get to hear in his own words what was done to him. And you are like, okay, I don't know if Turbot did the crime they're investigating now and I do feel sympathetic towards him but did ruin someone's life yeah and and whatever it was he seems un kind of assuming now but in that moment he was terrifying terrifying and a monster so it's interesting that the prison chaplain chose to be like excuse me but turbot was the one screaming in that apartment it's like yeah but did you hear the rest of what he did because the other boy was unconscious from being attacked right he assaulted a boy into unconsciousness so okay whatever um, yeah, Christopher is crying and sort of to c- come back. He sort of kind of, he's crying and he composes himself and he says to Olivia, what's your name? And she tells him her, his, her name and he begins to give her the origins of her name, starting from Greek mythology. Um, and Olivia looks like she's about to cry. Yeah. Cause again, it's just, cause it seems like one of those things where this poor kid, like his way, you know, it's like he had to snap himself out of it by talking about something completely different, you know? Now, I was like, this is a lovely moment. And then I go on IMDb and they're like, this isn't even true. The name was invented by Shakespeare. <laughs> Olivia was? <laughs> um, yes, the name Olivia. But it's just funny because they're like, yes, from the Greek, blah, blah, blah. And IMDb is like, this is not the, <laughs> this is not the true origin of the name Olivia. IMDb is not for these writers. Either. They're like, fuck you guys. <laughs> fuck you guys. Dun, 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 dun. So now we're at Turbot's apartment. So because they were able to find similarities, uh, I should say so, um, in the MO between Christopher and Ryan's attacks, now they can arrest Turbot. Yes. BNS like perp walk him out and there is a small group of neighbors. It's actually kind of dumb looking. Yeah, it's only like probably 
seven people. Like seven people. And they're like clapping at him. Yeah, they're jeering and clapping, being like. <laughs> it's, it's very slop clapping. I know. I'm like, I'm like, OK, guys, this is, this is a little weird. Um, don't these people have jobs? I was just thinking, are these the stay-at-home parents? I know. I'm like, I don't have time to go stand out of my outside my local pedophile's house and clap at him every time he gets no. out of the car. And I feel like uh, an employer would be like, okay, I guess it's perfectly within your right. But um, also, it's been like four days. You're just going to stay there until something happens? Yeah. Um, as they get Turbot into the cruiser, the bartender's back, and he approaches Stabler. Detective Stabler. I wasn't terribly forward with you the other day. And it reminded me of that scene from American Dad where Roger keeps saying to Francine, Francine, I haven't been completely honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And no, that's pretty much it. So he tells them, I lied earlier. Turbot never left. He was there the whole night playing cards and talking about his stamps. Yeah, he was babbling, quote, direct quote, babbling about postage, which they never mentioned when they were asking him the first time. Like Stabler was never like, hey, was this guy here talking about stamps? So the guy mentioning that, it's even more of like kind of a, oh, fuck. Like he really didn't leave, you know? Now, Paige, this is further evidence that Stabler likes to rewrite history because Stabler in this moment is like, what? You lied to me? Uh, 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 I didn't know this was a lie. And I'm like, I watched you get the information and I fucking know you knew he was lying. It's like because he looked sus because the way the guy said it was sus. Stabler even like looks at him as he as he like tells the story and then kind of glances down at his like notepaper. As if he's thinking, should I write this down? I think this guy's lying. And then is like, I'm just going to take it down that this guy said this and this is the facts. And now here he's like, oh, you were lying to me. I f- I'm fucking on to you, Elliot Stabler. I'm I fucking see you. on to you. You little rewrite history whenever it suits your needs. You little squirrel rewrite history. sick of you. And then Olivia comes over and she's, well, she came over right before that, but she was looking pissed. And I was wondering <laughs> why they didn't like beat the shit out of this guy because <laughs> I feel like lying about an investigation is like grounds for like some type of like arresting. But they just kind of are like, they look at him in disgust. Oh, and then he yells. So they're like getting in the car like, oh, we're disgusted. Mm-hmm. And the bartender yells at them. If he didn't do the Davies kid, he'll do someone else. You know he will. Paige, you're right. They say do. They say do a lot. Yeah, they did him. Doer. I'm like, this is disgusting. I get did by a hot man. (laughs) I'm taking that out for sure. (laughs) But you know, you don't don't talk about people who got raped as getting did, okay? Yeah, that's... You don't say they get got. Like, come on. Be respectful. And my thought here is he must... So he, he may be afraid that Turbot will go recommit a crime wouldn't you be more concerned that there there's someone else out there yes that is committing these crimes that no one's paying attention to dun dun the station i think um Cragen says they can't hold turbot and lisa tharps agrees uh, mostly because of the fucking lying liar stabler argues that they still have two eyewitnesses mike and jimmy and lisa says that's not good enough Liv says that they have the bike chain found at turbot's house and it matches the marks on ryan's neck but lisa says that's also not good enough as this is happening, Cragen receives a phone call and is kind of like talking in the background of the scene. And when he gets off, gets off the phone, he's like, that was the district attorney and he wants me to come in and we're going to discuss this case. So we are at the office of the attorney general. His name is Morris Klein. And Morris Klein can get it if you really want. He also loves a desk knickknack and he has this toy on his desk that looks so fun. I am going to find a screenshot of it. I don't know what the fuck it is. After we record, I'm going to show it to you. I want to play with it. 
you are poker face, by the way. This is what she does in poker face. She just looks at things and goes, wait, that knickknack was over there on Tuesday. And when it was over there on Tuesday, and then like just. Oh, she's like, monk. I just like people's shit. And I like to look at people's shit and judge them. So looking at all your shit. Just kidding. I know. This is why I'd be the one that's like, it's the dad. Like I'm the incest sniffer. And I'm like the knickknack queen. And I'm like, look at these knickknacks over here. He definitely did it. Yeah. Look at this knickknack. They're like, do they work together? They're like, eh, they work in tandem, but never quite together. I'm just like in the corner playing with toys. And I'm like, this guy did it. And I'm and I'm keeping this squishy thing. It's really fun. I'm just sniffing various items. Like, <laughs> It was the dad. It was the dad. Morris Klein, or the DA, uh, asked Cragen to hold Turbot. Because now there's public outrage over this alleged crime and also his imminent release. He's showing um, off like a newspaper with the headline like monster in the neighborhood or some yeah. shit like that. <laughs> so Cragen's kind of like, and this is where it gets weird because like at first Cragen, I know Cragen wants him to go to jail, but now he's kind of doing that thing where he's like, because someone else wants him to go to jail. Now he's like, uh, but we can't. And that's illegal. Cragen so, is like, I'd love to hold him if you have fresh evidence because we don't. You can, I can do that. Right. So the whole scene is basically the DA wants Cragen to find a reason to hold Turbot so that public doesn't get mad and they don't look bad. Cragen's saying that's illegal and, you know, we don't have enough evidence to do that. And the DA is kind of being like, can you try? So it seems as though, I don't know how to, what to call it, a piece of legislation is potentially going to come up, which would allow them, and I don't know if that means like the DA's office or whoever the fuck, they can hold sex offenders indefinitely if they get one in and they can get a psychologist to say something that they're like insane yeah and that was where so they want to bring in a fancy a fancy kind of special criminal psych uh, psychologist or psychiatrist to interview turbot and with her testimony hopefully and it sounds kind of like it's predetermined like it sounds like even if she decides yeah sounds like it's gonna happen regardless you know yeah so this, so Morris Klein gives this example and Craig's like, okay, so you want to use us as a test case, essentially. And he's like, yeah this, yeah, this is perfect. If this was something we could be doing to people, wouldn't we be doing it a lot? So I think this whole issue right here, they're just trying to give us an ethical dilemma. Right. So, so it's not real. Yeah. That's basi- what- so Klein basically asked Cragen to hold Turbot for longer and give him some time. And Cragen's like, I will give you 24 hours. And he's angry. He's like angry that they're asking him to do this. So if you guys are feeling confused like we are, it's okay because now we have a stupid pointless cutaway to Stabler playing with Dickie in the playground. Yeah, don't worry. Dun dun. Fucking ugh. Dun ugh. Stabler is going to pick Dickie up, I believe, after school. Dickie runs over and they start kind of chit-chatting. Dickie wants Stabler to come talk to his class about his job. Stabler kind of starts looking around. He eyes some guy on a bench who's putting on his shoes and gives gives him a dirty look. That would piss me off if I was just kind of minding my biz and some fucking dude looks at me. I'm like, I'm not even looking at your ugly kid. Fuck off. I know. And he's like putting on his socks. So I think they're trying. They're like, he's revealing his feet. So he's a pedophile. I'm like, yeah. Only weird pedophiles would take their socks off to try to adjust them. He was wearing like Tim's, I think. So maybe the socks slid down. Yeah, I don't fucking know. So Dickie goes, are you looking for pedophiles, dad? And Taylor goes, what, 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 what? What? Who said? Who told you I do things like that? And it's like, well, first of all, you were just now. Yeah. You were like practically drooling, like imagining getting out your gun and pistol whipping this innocent man. Right. Like he was just adjusting his friggin' sock. So A, you were doing that. And B, but he asked Dickie, like, who said that to you? <laughs> so I want to say the kid's name is like Danny Brown or some shit, like some 
Danny the, Bonaducci. No, yeah, I'm kidding. So Danny Bonaducci was like, yeah, your dad spends time looking for pedophiles. And Stabler's like, would you tell him? And he goes, I told him, or he goes, will you tell him? I actually forget. It was something like, that's not all I do. I know. He basically is like, well, no, I do other things too. And then Stabler's like, he's like, you tell him that your daddy's a cop and he does this, this, and this. And he goes, tell him yourself when you come to my class. <laughs> and a convo. I'm saying it with like a lot more sass. than. But Dickie was like pretty much like, you can tell him when you come to my class. So once again, Stabler shows up. It's supposed to be a normal scene where he picks up his son and he just turns it into drama. It, he's so dramatic. He's drama. Um, meanwhile, Elizabeth Stabler is dying from lack of attention. I know. She is dying from neglect. Dun, dun, dun. dun. The station, I think. Yes. Because um, one time we were at a jail and I couldn't tell. <laughs> um, the fancy psych lady, I'm just going to call her a psych because I always mix up the word psychiatrist, psychiatrist, or psychiatrist, psychotherapist. It's all, it's all the same. Uh, so she's interviewing Turbot. Cragen doesn't, again, he doesn't like this idea. Um, he thinks it's situational ethics. He says if you ask enough doctors, you're going to get one who has the opinion you want. And it's pretty clear that they've sent a heavily biased psychologist. Right. I think that's what the whole we said in the last scene. It was like kind of implied like, oh, no, she's going to come interview him and it's going to go the way we want. So just hold him for 24 hours. Her name um, is Dr. Greenblatt, and I'm just going to call her Dr. G that, anytime she appears. That's good because I keep calling her the psych and it's confusing <laughs> me uh, mentally. So they turn on the intercom to listen to her interrogate Turbot. Yes. Uh, just keep in mind throughout the scene, um, Cragen, Elliot, and Olivia are on the other side of the glass. And then inside is Dr. G, Turbot, and Susan from Friends. Yeah, his lawyer. Uh, so they're discussing Turbot's attack on Christopher. Turbot says that he was shocked when he saw the crime scene photos of his apartment after the attack. He said there was blood everywhere on the carpet, scratches on the walls. It seemed like an animal had been let loose in there. Um, so General Ick. Dr. G asks if he has ever fantasized about this, and he's like, no, I don't have fan." He's like, before that, my biggest fantasy was, like, maybe seeing some hot lady take her blouse off, which I thought was a little creepy, but... Right. <laughs> but I guess it was supposed to imply he's not attracted to little children. boys, yeah. children. And he says that he was on drugs at the time, which we did establish, so he was on a shit ton of drugs. So Dr. G asks if he feels any remorse for what he did to Christopher, and Turbot says, it haunts him every day. But that he doesn't remember a single minute of it. Yeah, he talks about how it's kind of like when you see a video of a birthday party when you were young and you remember the video, but you don't remember. He didn't know he was capable of something like that. And he goes, but you never know, do you? But what I took away from this was it was interesting. He did not say that he felt remorse. He sort of like was saying, I, he's like, well, it haunts me. In the world of the show, do you think he really does feel guilty? I was taking it as a no, actually. I don't think he does. He doesn't I say know, he... I know I don't remember doing this, but like, it eats me up inside that I, I know I did it. Right. He says he, she says, do you feel remorse? And he just doesn't answer the question. Yeah. It's kind of like what you say when you don't want to take accountability. Like when you say, oh, someone's like, you, you call me a bitch. And you're like, uh, I don't remember it. They're like, well, can you apologize? You're like, well, I'm not going to apologize for something I don't remember. Yeah. So I... This is why this actor is so good, because I go back and forth on how I feel about him. Yeah, because even it took me a minute to really even come to terms with that, because yeah. I felt him. I was like, I've been there, you know, something that haunts me. But I always feel remorseful, especially if it haunts me. That's usually part of the haunting is that I feel remorseful. Yeah. Because otherwise, why mm. does it haunt you? You didn't, it wasn't, didn't happen to you. Susan from Friends butts in and she says she would like to see the DNA results as soon as possible. 
And Kragen, who is still on the other side of the glass, is like, wait one fucking minute. I asked for those hours ago. <laughs> so he hops on the phone. Um, he does one of those phone calls where he's like, hello? Uh-huh. Oh, really? Isn't that interesting? Okay. Hangs up. So apparently the lab does have results. Um, and the DNA does not match the DNA that was right. found on Ryan. Mm-hmm. Very sudden. So Kragen hops on the intercom and is like, Mr. Turbot, you're free to go. And then Stabler turns around and goes, just like that, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 The DNA doesn't match. The DNA doesn't match and there's no fucking, and he has an alibi. He has an alibi. Why is it so hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that he might not have done it? That's That's poor police work, actually. That's where we get pissed off about this shit because it's just like, yo, like, so yeah, Turbot's released. The site comes out and says to Cragen that she needs the detectives to be at the hearing tomorrow and they're going to testify about Turbot's behavior when they interviewed him. Cragen says at this point, he's like, there have to be other options. Because now that we know that, that this woman is trying to get Turbot put away forever, which before I was kind of like, this feels sus. But now I'm like, he doesn't have any remorse for her and Christopher. Yeah. No, it's so hard. And Cragen's like, so you intend on putting him away, even though he did not kill Ryan Davies. And she's like, call it a preemptive strike. Yeah, it's a civil commitment is what they're calling it. That basically he, they think he shows very clear signs of reoffending. And even without this murder. They want him away because he probably is going to do it again. But that's just the opinion of this one woman. They like specifically found a woman who would feel that way. So they're letting him go. And this is where I got confused because, again, it, it seems like at this point that the squad, our squad, doesn't want him to go away because it's unethical. But then as he's leaving with his attorney, they're all looking at him like they're like disgusted. And he's like looking around at them kind of and they're all like crossed arms. So yeah. I'm like, what do we feel here? Dun, dun. Back at the Davies house. Um, I'm going to look up the name of my girl because I'm going to call them on that. My girl. Oh, the film came out in 1991. So this was stolen directly was from stolen. my girl. So Veda from my girl is still asking if they found Ryan's glasses yet. Now um, Stabler in another show of unprofessionalism goes, the case is not going well. Yeah, that was very different. I was like, um, maybe don't say that to them. It's like they're kind of your clients. Yeah. And I'm like, also, you picked a theory and then went after it, disregarding any evidence that went against it, which is literally poor police work. So, yeah, Stabler ultimately tells Mr. Davies and Mrs. Davies, Veda, that they don't believe Turbot's the guy who did it. And they seem very confused. Mr. Davies is like, but but like what? What the fuck? And they're like, yeah. We don't think we have the right person. So they kind and of. And then Olivia goes, and we have some, but we have some solid leads. I'm like, well, then why did Stabler tell them the case isn't going well? <laughs> but just his face, like while he's doing it, he's like, the case isn't going well. I'm like, okay, drama. Yeah, like it's impacting him. He's like, the case isn't going well. I really don't want to talk about it, Mr. and Mrs. Davies. They haven't taken two seconds to try to start reinvestigating. He's just like, it's not going well. Dun, 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 dun. We're a Dickies class. I, this scene was so annoying. It was stupid. And it also presented a new issue that I'm like, <laughs> wait. So Stabler is trying to teach Dickie's class about how to be safe. And he's passing around his badge. And he's like, hey, if anyone ever comes up to you and says they're a police officer, take a good hard look at their badge, which I was like, or just run. Yeah. It's a stranger danger lesson. He's passing around his badge. Um, so when he's describing, he's like, you want to make sure that the, uh, and he looks at the teacher because he's trying to think of a word for child molesters. I'm like, that's fair. And she looks at him and then at class and goes, child molester. Isn't there a better term we can use for our children? And I know, like, 
Stranger was the one they always just referred to strangers as bad people. Like, yeah. They wouldn't even tell us what they would do. They were just like, they're going to hurt you because they're strangers. This looks to be a class of probably like six or seven year olds. I mean, yeah. I'm guessing Dickie's probably supposed to be eight to match up with Ryan Davies, but he looks to me like closer to six. Yeah, I'd say six or seven because once you hit nine, you get into that tood area yeah, so where they're tooty. Yeah, they're kind of going over the basics of stranger danger. And this one kid in the back goes, what if you can't tell anyone? And Elliot's like, you can always tell someone. You can tell, you know, your parents if it's somebody who's hurting you, who's a stranger. And then the same kid goes, what if it's your dad, the one that's hurting you? And everyone kind of stares at this child for a hot moment. So Stabler, like, goes over and gets down on this kid's level. And he's like, well, then you tell Dickie and Dickie will tell me. This? so." I don't know what the rules are in New York, but in, I think it's state of New Hampshire, everyone is, is what's called like, oh God, a mandated reporter. Oh, so yeah, yeah. this child's teacher would have been a mandated reporter. So she, at this point, if she had noticed anything, already should have said something. I was going to say, I feel like this sentence alone, um, Stabler should have like taken this boy outside been like, hey, is there like something you need to tell me or like something you want to talk about? Right. It's like kindergarten cop. Remember that? Remember that? Yes. That was this an Uncle scene Buck reminded scene. me of Kindergarten Cop. That was my Uncle Buck scene for Kindergarten oh, Cop because. Whoops, that kid's dad's ass. It's oh, awesome. Because he looked at his neck and he's got this like open wound, yeah. you know? Yeah, that reminded me of Kindergarten Cop. But um, yeah, Stabler didn't Kindergarten Cop him, so. No, Stabler was like, oh, unless it's my son Dickie being molested, I don't really care. Yeah, please go through my secretary, a one Dickie <laughs> Stabler, and then he can report it. Um, dun, dun. We finally get some order. Oh my gosh, we get a little order and it's very exciting. Very exciting. We're at the Supreme Court. So we recount um, that Turbin was in jail for 12 years for his attack on Christopher. He was a model prisoner, apparently. <laughs> the chaplain loved him. The uh, Dr. G, the criminal psychologist, believes that Turbot will reoffend, and his lawyer argues he, he was deemed sane when he was originally convicted. So he didn't receive an insanity plea or an insanity conviction when he was originally convicted. But now, all these years later, Apparently, the state's trying to put him away under the grounds of insanity. So, and she's not wrong. It's, I know it's just so I, I I honestly don't know what the answer is here. And the judge seems to agree. He's like, "You're making really great points. Um, I'm going to review the case, but for now, Mr. Turbot is free to go." So, they're walking outside, and we focus in on Liv and L, and they're kind of arguing. They're doing that thing where they're arguing about something, like one person's having a conversation and the other person's having another one. Yeah. Um, they're arguing about whether or not Turbot's guilty. I think. And Liv is saying that there were nine other sex offenders in um, Ryan's neighborhood alone, Ryan, the victim's neighborhood alone. Mid-conversation, Mr. Davies, Ryan's father, takes like two big steps up the courthouse steps, gets right up to Turbot, takes out a handgun, shoots him four times point blank in the test. It is absolute chaos. And this is a very much um, blink it and you'll miss it moment because on my first watch, I, I looked up and I was like, oh, some random angry neighbor got angry and shot Turbot. I'm a little annoyed Ryan Davies' father did this. He was told it couldn't have been Turbot. Right. And he was like, I'll take justice. There's no justice to take into your hands, motherfucker. He didn't do it. And then he drops the gun, but his face says, I'd do it again. Yeah. Dun dun. Cragen's office. Cragen's pissed. Uh, he doesn't like vigilantism. He doesn't like anything. Oh, yeah. He, he's, I'm on Cragen's side here because Stabler's like, oh, what'd you expect him to do? Of course he would go shoot Turbot. I'm like, Stabler, I know. No, you're having a hard co- time with this. But let me repeat. He had an alibi for the time Ryan was murdered. He didn't do it. 
Yeah. Stabler's like, I don't understand what you, the words you just said. I think my brother brought up there was an episode. Oh, it was the one where um, the females rape the male sex worker or the male stripper. Um, and my brother goes, yeah, that whole episode was just Stabler being like, I want this to be true. So it's true, no matter what the evidence says. That is a very good analysis of Stabler sometimes as an officer. He gets very pig-headed and yeah. like kind of locked into an idea. But yeah, so I said that too. I was like, Stabler's low-key defending it. Like, okay, we get it. You're a fucking dad. We're so fucking tired of hearing about it. Another life is ruined. Like, what about Mrs. Turbot? Right. Now she's got no one. Yeah. She's lost her son tragically and horrifically, and now her husband's probably going to go to jail forever. That was fucking selfish. No, I absolutely agree with you. That was really fucking selfish. How do you come back from that? Like, your support system, the person you were, like, going through all of this with now is someone else you have to worry about and you've lost pretty much forever. Right. And I know I'm making fun of her for saying, you know, the glasses thing, but that's clearly supposed to, well, it's a couple of other things, but it's it's also t- designed to show us that this woman is unraveling, yeah. quietly unraveling. So yeah, Munch says her back to square one and Olivia remarks that they still have two witnesses and that is Mike D and Jimmy G. Now, hmm. would it have perhaps made sense to go back to Mike D and Jimmy G when we found out about Bill Turbot's alibi? And that the dirt didn't match. Yeah. So now that uh, Turbot's dead with four bullets in his chest. Just ridiculous. Oh, my God. Dun, dun. Interrogation room. So Cassidy is in the interrogation room, this first interrogation room with Jimmy G, as Olivia, Elliot, and Munch look on from outside the interrogation room. So they have Cassidy kind of doing a bro thing, because if you remember, Jimmy G's the more bro always yelling like this. He's very buddy-buddy, and he's very... For as much as I critique Cassidy he's really good here Cassidy reassures Jimmy because he looks a little bit nervous uh that they're only they're only there so they can ask him a few more questions because he was so helpful the first time around so he's reassuring him you're not in trouble we're here just to get your statement again Jimmy asks about Turbot again and Cassidy uses that to make fun of Turbot a little bit call him a weirdo he's like he's kind of creepy right you know just riding his little bike around friggin weirdo friggin nerd you know where was he riding his bike around again Jimmy he's like you were telling me like he was riding his bike like Where'd you say that was again? Jimmy's like, oh. The playing field. The playing field. And he's like, yeah. Like, what side? Uh, The north side. Cassidy goes, you know, I'm kind of bad with uh, instruction, you know, with like directions. He goes, was it the wood side or the river side? Mm -hmm. And Jimmy says, the wood side, by the field where Ryan was found. And he says very pointedly, he's kind of smiling. Then we cut over to second interrogation room where Munch is interviewing Mike D. And he asks Mike D if he ever talked with Turbot, if these kids ever interacted with Turbot. Mike says no. So Munch says he thinks it's kind of odd, basically, because these two are big dicks. Yeah. And they're the type that would heckle strangers. So they're like, I don't know, you never, like, said anything to him? Like, hey, weirdo, why are you riding your bike around here? Like, what are you doing, friggin' freak? And they were like, no. No, no, we never (laughs) talked to him. So then Mike D, again, they know exactly who they paired this guy with. Mike D quotes Aldous Huxley, and Munch gets a chance to quote it right back to him. And so all this, this seems to, like, break Mike D's composure. Yeah. He's like, ugh. Munch then asks Mike D what side of the playing field Turbot was on when he would ride his bike. And Mike D says he was on the sidewalk by the river, not the wood side. So we have now been given two inconsistent statements on where Turbot would ride his bike, and we know something's up with Mike D and Mike D. Yep, their stories do not match. So then we cut really quickly to Riverside by playing field, the wood side, apparently. Or the Riverside, sorry, I already said that. Cassidy um, and Stabler are having a conversation about how, do, like, about doing this job and then going home at night. And Stabler tells him, you never really get over it, but it does get 
kind of easier, but still not really. Yeah, Cassie says that he kind of like can't perform with women, I guess, because of all the stuff they see. And I'm like, that's kind of comforting to hear. I know. Sad. They go over to like this marshy area by the river and Cassidy finds Ryan's glasses. The rest of this episode goes really quickly. So next we're back at the lab and they immediately can identify that Jimmy G's fingerprint is on Ryan's glasses. Then we're back by Riverside Plainfield again. And Munch is theorizing out loud that Mike is the smarter of the two boys, though, because um, he has a conscience. And they, that's kind of the only thing we learn. Oh, no. Then. And they found the chain. Yep. Right then, as he says that, they find the bike chain. They hand it to Munch. Cut to forensics office again. Forensics guy confirms that the chain that was found was the one that killed Ryan. Yes. Uh, Liv reminds them that Turbot said his bike chain had recently been stolen, which once again, I feel like that was stuff that you and I could have brought up Mm -hmm. weeks ago. And they confirm that the DNA found under the boy's fingernails um, is one of, I forget if they say it's Mike D or Jimmy G. They never confirm. They say that- It's one of the two. Back to the interrogation room. Jimmy G tells Olivia and Elliot that he's been friends with Mike D since they were kids. Now, the- rest of this story is told back and forth between Jimmy G and Mike D. We are constantly being shown their two interrogations kind of as they're going through the story. Like if you're watching it, excellent directing. It's pretty seamless. It's not going to feel as seamless when we do it. <laughs> Liv asks Jimmy what happened to Ryan and Jimmy says he doesn't know. And Liv says that she's very sure that Mike will tell them. So at that point, Jimmy looks scared. Whereas before he's kind of been in between yes. confidence, scared. We're back in the interrogation room with Mike D. Now we're back again. Olivia and Elliot are interviewing Mike D. They tell him that they don't think he's a bad guy and that they think he went along with an idea that Jimmy had. So Stabler reminds him that Ryan didn't deserve what happened to him. And at this point, Mike's kind of breaking down his like weird tough guy exterior. He seems genuinely remorseful. Mike admits that he and Jimmy were surfing the web, <laughs> as they said. As they say in the 90s. And they found a sex offender site and that featured Turbot and a bunch of details about Turbot's original crime 12 years ago. They said that the details on the website are so specific that it felt like an instruction manual. And we cut to Jimmy and he says, we got this idea in our heads and it was like too good for you to forget, you know, just kind of like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no. So Mike says it was all Jimmy could talk about and that they started off just by messing with Turbot's stuff. They were moving his bike, stealing his bike chain. Mm -hmm. So there's that confession. Mike says that Jimmy became absolutely obsessed with the notion that, quote, Turbot could do anything with that bike chain. So it's kind of like almost like are they setting up for they're going to commit a crime and frame Turbot for it. Jimmy says on the day Ryan was killed, they were in Jimmy's garage smoking and they saw Ryan riding his bike back and forth in front of the garage, just kind of trying to get their attention. It sounds like the way an eight year old might. And they started to make fun of him Uh, and they make some crass comments um, calling him special needs. And Jimmy says, and I'm thinking. Whose bike was that? How many candy bars did he have to sell to get that bike? And Mike says, that bit about selling candy, that was it. So they just made up that he sold candy bars to get this bike. And so they somehow like triggered themselves into thinking about Turbot's story. Like they, right. There's nothing about Ryan selling candy bars. It's almost like they were, like they said, like so obsessed with Turbot's story and they were using it as sort of like that was going to be their alibi from the beginning. Yeah. Like whenever they did this to somebody, it was going to be their alibi. So like they're all like egged on and basically this triggers them. Jimmy grabs Turbot's bike chain. And uh, Mike confesses that they were just goofing around when they took Ryan into the marshes. But then Ryan's glasses fell off. And that's when he started to scream and freak out. And Mike says that he had to hold him down. And it was awful. 
And then yes. it's intercut with Jimmy yelling, look, I'm not gay or anything, which oh. is, of course, to imply. Um, we never get more details about that. Thank, thank God. God. So Jimmy says that because Ryan started screaming, they had to shut him up. So they took the bike chain and eventually they heard his neck snap. And Mike said he just laid there still. And Jimmy says the kid was a loser anyway. And then it cuts to Olivia and Elliot. It's kind of shell shocked. It's actually a very beautiful shot. It slowly pans over to Elliot and Olivia and you kind of just see Olivia swallow in shock. And it's perfect silence. Cut. Executive producer Dick Wolf. This was my favorite episode this, so far. This is one of the best episodes. This, I think, is the best episode so far. I really enjoyed it, even for all my nitpicking and about Stabler's police work. This episode, um, you probably, if you're a true crime fan, which I don't like to say anymore, um, a person who researches true crime heavily because we should be fetishizing other people's trauma. This was likely, if not most likely 100%, based on the case of Leob and Leopold. I believe that case was from the 1920s uh, or the very early 18th century. Oh, yeah. It's a very upsetting case. Yep. It happened in May um, 1924. So just a brief overview on that case. It was about two teenage boys who were probably around the same age as Mike D and Jimmy G were supposed to be. And they were wealthy, upper middle class white people. And they basically got into their heads that they wanted to commit a murder and get away with it. So their dumb fucking asses kidnapped one of their cousins and... I forget what they did to him. I don't believe they sexually assaulted him, but they did kill him somehow. And they tried to do ransom, I think. Oh, my God. They thought that they were highly intelligent and above average intelligence than like pretty much anybody. They were like classic um, sociopath narcissists. Another movie featuring Ryan, no, Ryan Gosling and Michael Pitt, crazy ass, uh, and Sandra Bullock called Murder by Numbers is also based off the Leob and Leopold case. It's, it's very... That's like a terrible movie. It's so bad. But then, so it's based off that. <laughs> no, I kind of want to watch it later, though. I was just thinking that. Oh, I'm like, okay. so anyway, we're going to watch that. Uh, so that was... And then potentially the James Bolger case, um, kind of similar. It was two 10-year-old boys who lured a three-year-old boy and abused him. Um, that was kind of my thoughts, aside from this is... Very beautifully shot episode. Yes. It felt very classic. I remember seeing this episode when I was a kid and being creeped out. Oh, yeah. You know, it was very disturbing. And it was still disturbing all these years later. A hundred percent. I very much enjoyed how much foreshadowing there was that the killers are Mike D and Jimmy G. It's kind of funny. If you're watching and, and you kind of already suspect it's them, you notice that the little girl that Cassidy talks to at the very beginning, he goes, have you heard anything? And she goes, it was boys. Older boys, Mike D and Jimmy G. She literally is like, yeah, I heard they did it. And right. Cassidy and Munch are like, well, we'll go talk to him, them. And then they're like, yeah, we're going to go follow this turbot guy. It, from the very beginning, like the girls look really scared, which again, if it's just if you're being asked, I don't think it's scary if you know that the boys didn't do anything wrong. You go, oh, some boys were talking about. Yeah. But the way that they were answering as though they were like terrified of the two people oh, they were yeah. discussing in general. That's why I tried to, when I was delivering um, Jimmy G's lines, I was trying to like say them verbatim because he would say things like, we saw Turban over on the plane field on the left side at 6.30 p.m. when Ryan was found murdered. And I'm like, so no one thinks this is expositional and strange? Yeah. They keep talking about how these eyewitnesses saw Turban and they take it as like gospel. Right. And like they keep repeating about the two eyewitnesses. And I'm like, okay, it takes you till the end of the episode to be like, wait a minute, so they lied about seeing him because this other guy says he was at the bar. Also, frankly, not for nothing, these kids were acting like dicks from day one. They were fucking jerks. They built this whole fucking case on 
the words of two I wrote clowns in my notes. Right. Because they were acting like clowns. They knew exactly where Turbot Turbot lived. They knew his schedule kind of. No one thought it was weird that they were sort of stalking this man that they didn't know. We didn't know what Turbot did yet. We didn't know he was a pedophile. He was just kind of a creepy loner. And they didn't think it was strange at all that these two damn near men, you know, because they were like adult teenagers, you know, like like 18. Oh, yeah. Stabler was so hyper focused on Turbot. And it's just like, okay, well, if you take Two seconds to think about it. It's obviously these two. I think there's a sub chain here that's called Jimmy G's. Look oh, isn't up. there a Jimmy G's? I was thinking of Jimmy G like Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah, no, that's what's coming up here. Oh, he's kind of cute. Oh, Jimmy Garoppolo is like probably one of the hottest quarterbacks in the NFL. Daddy, he's our age. Ooh, and he's a Scorpio. Oh, he's mm. so hot. Ooh. Mm. Need to get fit. Called me some Jimmy G. <laughs> well, um, yeah, on that note, I truly had nothing else. No. This is a bomb episode. It's getting an A plus in my book. I'm giving it an A because I'm taking off the tiniest of points for the pointless sticky stabler runner. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll see you next week. Later, squad. Later. Later.